Hi, I'm Fola Fagule. And I'm Fei Fawemi. Welcome to our podcast, where we explore the themes and ideas in our forthcoming book titled Formation, The Making of Nigeria from Jihad to Amalgamation. Formation is being published by Cassava Republic and is now available for pre-order on their website. You can find the link to the pre-order page at www.nigeria-formation.com. Over the next few weeks and months, we look forward to interacting with you online and hopefully in person soon. Each episode of our podcast will focus on one theme, idea, event, or character that we covered in Formation, the making of Nigeria from Jihad to Amalgamation. We'll also talk about how we went about doing the research and what we learned while doing so. We hope that this podcast will serve as a useful accompaniment to Formation itself when the book comes out. So, let's get started. Welcome to the second part of the ninth episode of the Formation Podcast. This episode is based on the ninth chapter of Formation titled Frederick Lugard, The King in the North. Last week, we introduced Lugard as a character and talked about how we gathered information about his life. We also went a little bit into our methodology for writing this chapter, particularly how we made sure to avoid getting sucked into Lugard's own version of history, while trying our best to be fair to this important character in the Formation story. Correct. Now, this week... We're going to take the Lugard story a bit further by looking at his actual time on the ground in Nigeria, starting with northern Nigeria in this episode. The story of Lugard is, of course, completely uh, untold without discussing his most important supporter and promoter, Flora Shaw. So we will also talk about her role in this part of his life. But as always, we start by taking a few questions from listeners to our previous episodes. First question is from my man, Adebayo Onigbanjo from Chicago. He asked about economic development in the pre-colonial Nupe Kingdom and what lessons we may be able to take from it. Hello, Fei and Vola. My name is Adebayo Onigbanjo from Chicago. And I wanted to talk about the Game of Thrones in Niger Heartland episode and especially what traits from Nupe we can learn from. Firstly, let me congratulate both of you on a wonderful initiative and I wish you all the success with your book and the discuss it leads to going forward. So I just have a quick question and you kind of danced around it, uh, but I'm wondering if there are other things you discovered during your research. You indicated that Nupe achieved economic growth from a not so obvious location. So my question is tied around that. We have seen that true federalism seems to continuously meet resistance due to several factors. So what made Nupe stand out besides the obvious things such as its role as a central connector and proximity to rivers? What role did leadership play, i.e. Masaba? And is this something that can be replicated and what would be required? I'm sure you know I'm trying to find a way to replicate Shenzhen without government intervention. Finally, thanks again and keep up the great work. Thanks a lot, Bayer, for the question. I think the first thing to say is that the river and proximity to it are a lot of the reasons. And quite frankly, such a geographical heritage is often more than enough for you to work with. Um, imagine Chicago being as cold as, as cold as it gets, but without being near Lake uh, Michigan. All of a sudden, the story of what that city might be changes dramatically. Now, we also know that plenty of countries and cities have wasted their geographical inheritance uh, you can find several examples of such across the world. So we must credit the Nupe for being able to make something of the river around them. 
Now to your question about leadership. Uh, we, we quote some stats in the book to show how economic activity grew quite dramatically under Masaba. Uh, as much as the Nupe had all the ingredients for economic growth, uh, not much could happen when they were playing their Game of Thrones for five decades. But the moment they managed to get an undisputed leader, things changed. Uh, this is the part of history that can be very uncomfortable because for our modern society, it comes with a don't try this at home warning. Masaba, to put it simply, beat up everyone around and consolidated power in his hands. He enforced order and drove economic growth. Some people who met him described him as a tall and handsome man who had no fiscal match among the dozens of rulers and leaders in the area. Not only did he have military might, he himself was physically imposing. Sometimes this is the kind of answer that history gives. One strong guy comes on the scene and dominated everyone until he had his way. Uh, we don't have that option today if you want to create a Shenzhen. But what we have is the option to experiment. We can try things out on a small scale to see what works. Um, remember that the reason that Deng and the Chinese leadership chose Shenzhen back then was because they wanted somewhere as far away as possible from Beijing so that if the experiment with markets and trade failed, they could shut it down quickly and blame the local guys. But as Nigerians like to say, look at God. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Faye. Indeed, look at God. Um, we got another couple of really good questions from Sanusi Ismaila. Uh, he sends them in from Kaduna, and he's asking about change and innovation in northern Nigeria, as well about as well as about waterside uh, urban development around the River Niger. Hi, Faye Yamfala, Sanusi Smila from Kaduna here. Big fan of the work you've put out so far, and really looking forward to the book. Two quick questions. Um, in one of the episodes, Faye mentioned how difficult it was to hire full-time workers in northern Nigeria at the time, and it struck me how very little has changed in many respects, including that one. For the most part, people today still fetch water from wells and cook over open fires the very same way you know some of your characters did pre-Nigeria. What other things did you find not to have changed much um, while you were doing your research? And you know, I, did you find any leads as to why, as a people generally across board, were very anti-change and anti-innovation? The second question is on the River Niger. Is there any historical reason why there's no waterside real estate development like you find in other places, like um, pretty much everywhere, you know, London, um, Bangkok, everywhere? Thanks for your questions, uh, Sanusi. They're both uh, really thought-provoking. Uh, I'll start with the second one first, and then I'll explain why after. You know, so you ask, you know, why there isn't as much waterside urban development alongside the River Niger uh, as one would expect to see, given what we have in, in so many other parts of the world. Uh, so to answer, the first thing to say is that in formation, uh, we offer uh, a quite strong theory about the history of the rivers Niger and Benue uh, and the impact of this history on social and economic development in Nigeria. Uh, this theory is offered in our opening chapter uh, because it's so important uh, to understanding the evolution of the country that has been formed uh, around these great rivers. Uh, now to your question. I think it's not entirely correct uh, to say that there isn't much waterside development uh, along the Niger River in particular. Uh, if you look at cities like Bamako, Segu, Timbuktu, Gao, uh, Niame, uh, in present-day Mali and Burkina Faso, uh, you will see that they, are, uh, they all lie exactly on the path of the river uh, with extensive uh, modern uh, real estate development right on the waterfront 
And even in Nigeria, uh, if you look at our nature, uh, to, and to a lesser extent, Yawa, Nubusa, and Jeba, uh, you'll find some degree of waterside uh, development. And I think the reason that the first set of cities, the non-Nigerian ones uh, that I named, are better known for waterfront urban development uh, is because they are presently located within landlocked uh, nation states. Uh, you see, as we show in formation, prior to European arrival on the river, much of the focus uh, of these cities was towards the Mediterranean Sea uh, and the Old World uh, in Arabia and, and, and the East. Uh, but in the last 200 years, the direction of trade and commerce and politics has shifted towards the New World and the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, I think that with that shift, much of the focus in the areas of trade routes and infrastructure development in these uh, modern countries has also gravitated towards the Atlantic uh, with its seaports, uh, its direct shipping access to the New World. Uh, and so uh, the modern countries that have a coastal berth on the Atlantic Ocean, like Nigeria, uh, for these countries there's been a quite dramatic shift in, in urban development uh, away from the rivers and towards the coast. Uh, this has not been the case with the landlocked countries who simply continued with their historically uh, important waterside cities and then added rail and road connections uh, to the coastal ports of their neighboring countries. Uh, so I think that we, we have to look towards a complex combination of trade and colonial history to understand the state of urban development in those of our own cities in Nigeria that lie along the path of the, of the Niger River. Uh, now, I answered the second question first because I think that there may be a similar theme at work in terms of change and innovation as well. Uh, it is obviously a separate matter with deeper factors at work, but I think the changes in, in modern trade routes, uh, in, in linkages and, and in the direction of traffic flow is also at the core of that observation. Um, as you know, uh, trade linkages can be an important vessel for change uh, development and innovation. So if we are to successfully change the state of affairs in much of uh, Nigeria and many parts of Africa as well, uh, we have to find ways to bring the benefits of trade and commerce to every part of the continent. And that is all about education uh, and infrastructure. Uh, but, you know, don't get me started on those because those are some of my <laughs> favorite topics. Um, anyway, thanks a lot, Sanusi, for your really thoughtful uh, questions. Great, thanks, Ola. I mean, that shift in trade from the Mediterranean towards the Atlantic is um, it's it's an under discussed point. Anyway, so I think this is a good point to take a break, and then we'll be right back for our concluding discussion on Frederick Lugard, the King in the North. Welcome back. We'd like to pause here and talk a bit about why we wrote formation, the making of Nigeria from jihad to amalgamation and why we think this story is so important. Neither of us is trained as a historian. We both work in financial services. But we share a belief that a careful understanding of history is fundamental to navigating the future. One thing I like to say is that the past is an ongoing business. With more information, we can go back in time to edit the past. The history of Nigeria is a great example of this as it still affects the present. And if we don't understand it, the future is guaranteed to look just like the past. Exactly. My biggest hope for formation is that it provides a nuanced and thoughtful starting point for many future journeys into the history of our culture, politics, and economics. We also hope that it begins a conversation that will help navigate a more advantageous future for the humans of Nigeria. So, 
let's get back to it. And we're back. So, last week, we talked about one of the most impressive self-promoters to ever rise to prominence in Nigeria. Uh, As we said last week, Lugard's complex life story uh, and the global context within which he rose to fame was really important to understanding how he came to be situated at uh, Zungeru uh, early in the 20th century with the full authority of the British government uh, to more or less do as it pleased in a large country that Europeans still barely knew about. Um, This week, we will talk about what he did uh, once he was on ground, as we say in Nigeria. Uh, so, Faye, let me start by setting the context. Uh, I think the first thing to point out is that there was no such thing as a country called Northern Nigeria on the day Lugard got off his vessel at Akasa uh, before going up the river in a steamer to Lokoja. Uh, in reality, he had been handed political uh, authority over a paper protectorate, uh, a figment of the imagination of some ambitious imperialists in Britain. Uh, Worse still, right after Lugard settled down at Lokoja, a violent crisis broke out at another country nearby, in present-day Ghana. You know, another one of those glorious incompetents we talked about had started some problems in that country, just like we saw in Benin. Uh, And a major armed effort was needed to subdue the local people. Uh, This is what came to be known as the Anglo-Ashanti War of the Golden Stool uh, in Ghana. So as it turned out, most of the native armed forces of the Royal Niger Company that were supposed to be available for Lugard's empire-building efforts in the Niger-Benue area were taken away to deal with that crisis. Uh, those troops were away for about a year, during which Lugard was basically a sitting duck, you know, a newly arrived colonizer with limited armed forces, uh, situated not too far away from the domains of a powerful 100-year-old empire. So, Faye, with the context set, first question for you. Why didn't the rulers of the Sokoto Caliphate appreciate the great risk to their political future that Lugard portended? Uh, why didn't they see that he, was, uh, that he had to be defeated early? And why didn't they get rid of him during that first year when he didn't have the full complement uh, of his war-making capabilities uh, at his disposal? Hmm. Now, this is a, an interesting question. Um, we raised a number of what-if questions in the book, but this was not one of them. I guess this is the, this is the point of this podcast. Uh, to answer this question, we have to clear one basic question first. Did the leaders of the caliphate know what's up, to put it colloquially? Now, not just that there was a, a white guy hanging around the middle bell, but did they have a full appreciation of what his, uh, what this meant to them? To answer this question, we can go back 80 years before Lugard's um, arrival. When Clapperton visited Sokoto, everyone thought he was a spy. The idea that Britain might do to Sokoto what what they had done to India was also widespread among the officials in Belo's court. In fact, one of Belo's spiritual advisors told him, told Belo that is, to kill Clapperton Mm. because the British had been going to India in ones, twos, until they got strong enough to take the whole country. Bello, of course, did not kill Clapperton and mostly got on with him quite well. So I think it's safe to conclude that the leaders of the caliphate knew the exact meaning of what Lugard's presence in Lokoja meant. Not just that, there's evidence that they were actually paranoid about the British. Uh, we talk information about the Sultan who expelled all the Yoruba 
traders from Sokoto claiming they were British spies. This is just before Lugard's um, um, war, you know, takeover of, of the North. Yeah. So this brings us to your question. Lugard was exposed for about a year and they didn't take advantage to strike an early blow against him. Why? The simple answer is that they were being pragmatic. At this point, this was nearly six years after Benin had been invaded and Nupe and Ilori had been taken at the counter with the Maxim gun. No doubt this would have played on their minds. I mean, do we really want to fight this battle that we are sure to lose, given that our own fighters are hardly motivated and we are likely to be betrayed by many of the people we have had local quarrels with, like happened in Bida? It would not have been easy to answer yes to such a question for them. But I think there is an, also another deeper reason that is revealed to us in the, in the reason why Lugard convinced himself he had to invade the Caliphate and take it over. To put it simply, Lugard himself was afraid. As you said, he had a piece of paper telling him he was in charge of northern Nigeria as we know it today, but that paper was not really backed by anything. It still needed to be turned into reality. All around him, there was insecurity. Even the places like Bida and Ilori that were in theory already occupied by him were openly hostile and disrespectful to his officials. The person they deposed from Bida in 1897 had returned and taken his throne back. A few British officials along with some missionaries had been murdered with impunity. It was so bad that one British resident named um, Nicholson rode back home to his mother, wondering why the Fulani did not even kill more British officers, as they would have gotten away with it. Then you had someone like the crazy Ibrahim Nagwamate, aka May Sudan, operating with absolute impunity right under Lugard's nose. Hmm. In short, Lugard was smelling of weakness to anyone who was watching him. So this brings us to my own answer to the question. The Caliphate's leaders did do something. I mean, part of what motivated Lugard were stories that the, leader in, the leaders in Sokotos were buying up arms from Nigerian troops who had deserted the British and French forces and that they were also fortifying their walls against attack. It would appear to me that the Fulani grossly overestimated the British power at the time and this led them to a defensive position where they could have gone uh, instead gone on the attack. They were preparing for a British attack which eventually came while the British were terrified and also prepared for a Fulani attack. As we say in the book, Colonial conquest was quite possibly the greatest bluff in history. Indeed, indeed, an amazing, an amazing bluff. And this is such an important uh, backstory uh, as to what was happening within the Caliphate itself around the time of uh, Lugard's arrival to scatter everything, as we as we now say in Nigeria. <laughs> uh, I also found very interesting some of the other actions that the Caliphate took, which I won't uh, say here, so we don't spoil it for for readers uh, around espionage. Uh, and just getting to understand what was going on uh, around them. Anyway, so now let's talk about the process of Lugard becoming uh, the king in the north. Uh, in this uh, chapter of formation, we show that it was a very duplicitous ex uh, enterprise uh, and that he deployed you know, nearly every trick in the book to achieve his premeditated uh, objectives. So what should our listeners and readers look out for most uh, in this chapter? I mean, what did you find most interesting and thought-provoking? For me, you know, I'll start, uh, I was intrigued at the ironic parallels between Lugard's revolution in the early 20th century and Danfodio's revolution uh, 100 years before. You know, the way uh, Lugard appeared to not be a real threat at the start, just like Danfodio and his motley crew at Gobert, you know, then the way Lugard exploited the internal politics of the various emirates within the caliphate to subdue them as a whole, 
just like Sherwood and Fodio and his key lieutenants did at Kebi and, and some of the other house estates in the early years of the jihad. Then the way Lugard clothed his uh, imperial ambitions in the language of some bigger ideological mission, in his case, the eradication of slavery. Just like the Fulani jihad was originally clothed in the language of uh, Islamic reform, then you had Lugard using the complaints uh, of extortionate taxes by the caliphate as a justification for his armed revolution against the prevailing order just like Danfodio had done with his propaganda against the old house estates. Then there was the irony of the close similarity in the military tactics, uh, the so-called square formation, uh, that were deployed by Lugard's heavily armed forces, so similar to the ones uh, that the early jihadists uh, had used as well. I'll also add uh, that during the jihad, the ethnic minorities uh, within the old house estates were at the core of the armed revolution against the the dominant groups, uh, which was another similarity with the reduction of the the caliphate. Again, mostly by ethnic minority uh, black troops uh, and administrative officers, obviously under uh, European military and political officers. So these were all uh, fascinating similarities, and we illustrated most of of these ironic parallels in formation. But uh, what was it for you? What did you find most interesting and thought-provoking? about the political, social, economic, and military process uh, leading to the emergence of the king in the north. Uh, yes, those, uh, those historical parallels were incredibly spooky. Uh, maybe it's just the way things always go, but if Danfodi or Bello could have somehow come alive in 1903 to see how Lugard was taking over the empire they built, they would have been incredibly angry. But I suspect secretly a part of them would have said, hmm, well played. <laughs> uh, you know, to, to your to your question, I think I think what I found most interesting was the run up to taking Kano and Sokoto. Um, it was such a gamble, and if it had gone wrong, we would have included Lugard in the in the glorious incompetence chapter, no doubt about it. But this guy was so headstrong and single minded that even the death of the Sultan right before he began his march did not deter him. Any other person would have paused and said, "Hmm, this is kind of a big deal. Maybe we should chill a bit and try another day." Not Lugard. You know, once his mind was made up, it was forward ever. And he had a lot of luck along the way. We show in the chapter how he could easily have been killed between Sokoto and Katsina. But I think that, for good or bad, his sheer force of will propelled him to take on a hundred-year-old empire and bring it to heel. Um, we don't have access to what would have been said by his officers who led the advance party. Did they tell him, Oga Freddy, this thing is not really a great idea. Let's not do it. Uh, were there shouting matches between those who wanted to fight and those who didn't? We know he had um, two close associates who played the role of um, Hawk and Dove, and the Hawk was the one he really liked like a son. Honestly, I wish I knew where his courage came from. Indeed, indeed. I suppose we could say that Lugard suffered uh, or benefited, depending on how you look at it, uh, from a quite uh, extraordinary case of white privilege. Um, anyway, it was a truly amazing story, um, which I look forward to sharing with uh, readers when formation comes out. Um, by the way, still on irony and, and historical parallels, uh, we will encounter a few more uh, in the last chapter of formation, which we called conquest and discontent. Personally, I found these types of things so interesting, uh, and I hope that our readers will uh, as well. Anyway, moving on, now let's talk a bit about the role of Flora Shaw in all this conquering. You know, I've come to think of, uh, to think of her as something of a quarterback uh, on Lugard's football team, to use uh, an American expression. Uh, with Lugard, you know, the self-promoter himself being, of course, the running back, 
uh, always sprinting to catch the ball uh, and hug all the, the headlines. Uh, you know, it's a terrible me- metaphor, I know, but you get the point. You know, Flora was, uh, <laughs> was back home in England uh, pulling the political strings that made it possible for Lugard to shine in northern Nigeria. Uh, so which particular examples of this dynamic struck you as remarkable uh, based on the historical records we found? Uh, I'm quite certain that there were many more examples than the ones we found, uh, but which ones uh, illustrated it well for you? Uh, yes, um, yeah, you're right that she was back in England. I mean, we show in the book that she, she, she never settled in Nigeria. She lasted less than six months. But anyway, readers will see that. Um, as I said in the previous episode, uh, I came away from this book with a rather sympathetic view of Flora. Maybe because all my life she had been reduced to no more than Lugard's uh, quote-unquote girlfriend. But he would have been nothing, absolutely nothing without her. You know, I'm, I'm convinced of that. Um, they married when she was 50 and he was 47. They, of course, had no children. So theirs was a mature relationship. And I think they were genuinely very fond of each other. Viewing it through that frame, we see how she repeatedly looked after him and repaired the relationships he had damaged. Um, she did a lot of that in Hong Kong when he did not know how to deal with an elected um, legislature, which is with his own power base. She was the one who organized parties and softened his image so he could at least achieve something before leaving there. But I think the biggest one was that she was the one who helped him repair his relationship with young uh, Winston Churchill. Both men did not really get along. Churchill was no fan of Lugard's methods and, and Lugard viewed Churchill as the kind of politician based in London who only talked about the empire but ran away when it was actually time to do the real work of building that empire. Um, after he was removed from Nigeria, she was the one who repaired the relationship with Churchill which allowed him to get the Hong Kong job. She she managed to invite him over to the house in Surrey, uh, Churchill that is, uh, where he even spent a night and, and he and Lugard mended fences. As you mentioned before, she used her newspaper position to campaign for more resources for Lugard's work in Nigeria. One reason I'm sympathetic to her is that unlike her husband, I've not yet come across a single thing she wrote um, that may have been construed as racist. Maybe it's out there, but I've, I've not come across it. You know, Perhaps that is a low bar, but she always seemed to talk and write about Nigeria in um, respectful terms, and her book for the time was well-researched and centered Africans as particularly uh, perfectly capable of managing their own affairs, even if she was an ardent imperialist. Anyway, I hope this sparks some conversation about her role in um, in Nigeria's formation. Indeed, indeed. Fascinating. Um, you know, perhaps they were the most uh, dynamic, romantically involved duo to ever engage in the complex politics uh, of Nigeria. Uh, I hope that our readers will find their story as interesting as we did. So, as we wrap up, Let's talk now uh, a bit about the present and the future of Nigeria, as we always do uh, on the podcast. So first, do you see any historic parallels between the modern-day politics of northern Nigeria uh, and the earlier revolutions of Lugard and Danfodio? I mean, what are the odds of a new king in the north uh, appearing to us now or in the future, you know, clothed in the well-worn garb of the previous uh, pretenders? Uh, and for those of us who are, cons- who are more concerned about economic development for the ordinary people in northern Nigeria, what lessons can we take from the tactics, uh, the successes and the failures of, of the previous kings in the north? <laughs> Some people say we currently have a king in the north, although I couldn't possibly comment on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But more seriously, I, I think the economic development part of Lugar's work was interesting. Um, before he turned up, to use one example, Nigerians had been using cowries for about 400 years, uh, linked to the slave trade. 
Um, this currency had become a nuisance due to inflation, meaning you had to carry bags and bags of it around. Um, it got to the point where some uh, some kings simply carried slaves on journeys to use as currency instead of cowries. You know, almost overnight, Lugard changed this. And the way he did it was um, is what has lessons for us today. Uh, back then, the trade routes were all very dangerous, as we mentioned earlier. But by clearing some routes and providing security for trade caravans to pass along those routes, he was then able to charge tolls, um, charged on the value of the goods you were carrying. And the trick was that the, the tolls could only be paid using Lugard's coin and not cowries. In no time, the cowrie was on his way out. Um, the lesson here is that the things that people thinks, uh, people think cannot change in, in Nigeria only persist because no one has offered an alternative that resonates with Nigerians. It's one of the reasons why the Chinese have been successful in Nigeria. By targeting a pain point where there's a clear and visible connection between what you pay and the value you receive. Today, we have a lot of leaders who want to either collect um, uh, taxes first and promise the service later or even disappear. It will end in tears. Uh, th I think that's the T. <laughs> Premium tears, indeed. Um, you know, I will add one thing we found which struck us as important and so we included it in formation. Um, you know, the historical records showed that immediately after conquest, you know, and of course the establishment of a strong garrison in a city, the first thing Lugard and his officers focused on was establishing the infrastructure for the transparent administration of justice over both civil and criminal matters. Absolutely. Um, maybe a basic point, but it's also such a, a vital point. Uh, not just about the history of British rule in Nigeria and how it came to be accepted by the population, uh, but also about uh, what we, the modern elite of Nigeria, must do if we are to create a country that is truly at peace uh, under political officers whose powers are justly derived from the consent of the governed, uh, to take a phrase out of the American Declaration of Independence. Um, so we found so many truly important lessons like this information uh, for now and for the future. Anyway, uh, with that, I think this is all the time that we have for today's episode. Uh, it has been such a great conversation as always. Uh, next week, we will go into the first of two parts in our final episode, uh, which covers the last chapter of formation titled Conquest and Discontent. Uh, it is the chapter in which the whole of Nigeria as we know it today finally comes into existence. But as we show in formation, uh, creating the country was just the start of the problems for its new rulers. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. And so am I. See you guys next week. So that's it for today. We hoped you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for our book, Formation, The Making of Nigeria from Jihad to Amalgamation, being published by Cassava Republic, and which is now available for pre-order on their website. We would love to hear from you. You can leave us a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash Nigeria formation forward slash message. The link to this is also in the podcast notes. Please leave your name and where you live in the voice message. We will play it and answer your questions in the next episode. You can also continue the conversation with us on Twitter by tagging our handles at double F, that's at D-O-U-B-L-E-E-P-H and at Folafagbule, that's at F-O-L-A. F-A-G-B-U-L-E Please also use hashtag FormationNG on Twitter You can also get more information and updates online at www.nigeria-formation.com The pre-order link is also in the podcast notes 
This pre-order is for a limited edition hardback copy. Please tell your friends and family. We look forward to speaking with you again soon about formation.